Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Today on the podcast, we present Peter Schneider in conversation with Sarah Moss. Sarah is the author of Summer Water and Ghost Wall, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and a best book of the year in Elle, the Financial Times, and other publications. She was educated at the University of Oxford and now teaches at University College Dublin. Her latest acclaimed novel is The Fell, a riveting read that explores mutual responsibility, personal freedom, and the ever-nearness of disaster. Emma Donahue calls it a slim, tense page-turner that captures the weird melancholia of locked-down life, but also the precious warmth of human connection. Here's Peter Schneider in conversation with Sarah Moss. As we begin, I just want to let you know how much I love reading your work, how much I have enjoyed uh, your three most recent novels, and as well, the nonfiction book you published a number of years ago, Names for the Sea, about Iceland. Uh, and those have been my entry points into your body of work. And I'll, I'll, I'll begin just by an observation that if there's something that connects your two most recent books, which have been written and, and published during very turbulent times in the last few years, is that there's a sense in, in, in the world that, that of your characters that this isn't the world I was told to expect when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we can begin our conversation with a conversation about how turbulent recent years have been and about your approach as a novelist uh, to the situation, particularly in the UK, you know, with Brexit and post-Brexit and the pandemic. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I think I was thinking about this a lot writing Ghost Wall, which I meant to be very much about about my generation. I mean, Sylvie's a little bit older than me, but not very much. And I think growing up in Western Europe in the 90s, there was so much excitement about Europe and certainly at my school and schools like mine an encouragement to think of ourselves as European and to learn the languages and to, you know, go to the movies and travel and do exchanges. And an idea I absorbed somehow, which in retrospect is absolutely idiotic, that the tide of liberal democracy was just going to go on rising across the world until everybody was free and equal and democratic. And, you know, then the end of history would be at hand. And I have no idea how any intelligent person ever believed that. But somehow it, it felt logical and natural to me well into my teens that that was that was how history was going and i remember my shock as a teenager over the war in yugoslavia because i thought war was not something that that we did anymore and certainly not something that europe did anymore that those days were behind us and of course they're not how how did i ever imagine that we'd somehow broken out of history or broken out of violence or war or conflict or any of those things it, it now seems bizarre to me i mean it's stupidly naive but that was the narrative that that i and my peers grew up with so i think there's there's a strong sense of shock and disappointment and maybe also as children of the boomers we're the 
first generation for a while to face the fact that our lives are less comfortable and secure than our parents' lives. And all of this is specific to class and geography and history, but there's something, I think there's some common ground there. You mentioned class and one of the things that really resonates for me in reading Summer Water and The Fell is how intimately you're able to evoke a character through interior monologue and how subtle and accurately registered the nuances of class are in your books. And do you feel that this is something that is challenging for a North American readership or, or for an American or Canadian readership? Um, I think it's so subtle and so beautifully done and, and rendered there's like a mosaic of perspectives people looking at similar situations from different vantages but please um can we have a a, a chat about interiority or uh the specificity of uh of class that that's another really lovely question um i think about that when the books are coming out in north america because it seems to me that some of my concerns are, are very specific but I think it's Ben Lerner had a really nice answer to this question about you know, writing from the bourgeoisie, really, and I'm probably going to mangle what he said horribly, but I, it stuck with me, that specificity is, is kind of the way forward. It's when we start assuming that our own experiences are universal that we get into difficulties. So the more specific you can be, the more you're opening up a world to the reader. And I think readers and writers have to and learn to trust each other. I mean, when I'm reading American literature, which of course, like any Anglophone, I do a lot, I trust that the writer will enable me to interpret their work and will feed, if I read carefully, will feed me what I need to understand the context. And they do, and I do learn. And I think that works in reverse as well. And sometimes preparing the North American editions feels almost like helping with a translation. It's it's always the it's the things you don't expect that are suddenly a problem. Somebody will say, but what is a terrace house? Mm -hmm. And you think, oh yeah, okay, fine, a row house. Um, it, yeah, hosiery is often really complicated. Um, pants, tights, stockings, all of that kind of stuff. But I think the more we read each other, the better we get, the more agile we become at, at doing that kind of work. So I think good readers and good writers find a way through that one together. In, in the current context with the, the horrific war that's happening in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, there has been um, a lot of activity, um, a lot of, of positioning, and there seems to be, for good or for bad, uh, a, a reanimation of the, the mythologies around the Second World War, around absolutes of good and evil, of the West and the East, um, and authoritarianism and democracy. These are themes that are woven deeply into your work, uh, I think, throughout your body of work, uh, that, that sense of this dislocation of being postmodern, but also atavistic of, you know, the sense of the past never leaving us. And 
the irony of uh, the British Prime Minister standing up with a standing ovation for a Ukrainian uh, president, and that the experience in the British popular memory of the Second World War is particular. Yeah. And that is alluded to in The Fell, it's, it's touched upon in other works that you've written. Can we talk about that, how it feels right now to be um, in the British Isles? You're in Dublin right now, but in the British Isles at this moment and, and the, 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 the echoes of the Second World War. And, and the... Yeah, where I am at the moment, it kind of doubles that complication because Irish people would not like the phrase the British Isles. Okay. Um, I'm not in the UK and I haven't been for a couple of years and I'm not sure that I will ever live there again. And of course, the Irish relationship with England is so traumatic and complicated going back centuries. One of the interesting and challenging things about living here is learning a shared history from, I was going to say the other, but another side. And some of my frustration with the, I think, English much more than British relationship with that jingoistic narrative about World War II came from watching my kids go through the school system in England and seeing them repeatedly encountering the same very partial story which was labelled World War II but was actually only about the Blitz and was a very triumphalist jingoistic reading of the Blitz in which Aerial bombardment is almost a kind of weather sent to prove British resolve. Very little reference to the international context even, and an account in which everybody bands together and sings jolly songs and cooks lots of things with potatoes and you know, kind of toughs it out, which is historically inaccurate. I mean, completely inaccurate. There were plenty of people being absolutely as traumatized as any population is under aerial bombardment and suffering exactly the consequences that any population does. But seeing what was being taught in schools was quite frightening. And then seeing how the Brexit narrative co-opted that simplified jingoism about the Blitz was quite scary because I think there's a, an extent to which, I mean, you said that that with the war in Ukraine, we're seeing a revival or a return of those narratives, but there's a sense in which they never really went away in England. And certainly they were very vigorously and deliberately revived in the run up to and aftermath of the Brexit referendum. And I mean, inevitably, I find it very sinister. I think any kind of nostalgia for war is pretty frightening. But the Irish perspective on it is, of course, completely different. Um, and that's useful to see and useful for my kids to encounter as well. Um, so I think, I mean, all nations co-opt history to their own advantage, but I think the, the English have a particularly perverted way of doing it. Even in the, in the run up to Brexit, uh, people making sort of spurious uh, arguments or ludicrous statements that it's okay if we lose access to all of the produce from the European Union, because we'll plant victory gardens and we'll have potatoes in the backyard like we did in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, as I, as, I, as I said at the beginning of our chat, this isn't the world I was promised. This isn't what I expected. We're now several years out from Brexit and there are supply chain issues. There's a loss of opportunity of economic access and it's hurting everyone, if, if I could say that. 
Um, and in your work, something that I have responded to and have really, really appreciated is the way that you can incorporate the mundane aspects of our lives. What is in the refrigerator? What is to eat tonight? And uh, evoke that these things are all indicative of how much money you have, how much access the market provides, uh, the state of an economy, um, the history of food. Uh, please tell me a bit more about your interest in, in the foodstuffs and the, you know, the stuff of life. Yeah, I think it's always a political issue. People sometimes say, why, well, you know, Sarah Moss is always writing about laundry. Why do you keep writing about the laundry? Isn't laundry boring enough? And I think because most of us do the laundry pretty much every day. I mean, certainly if you've got kids, you're doing the laundry every day and it's taking somebody in your house you know, some number of minutes out of their life every single day. So it seems to me obvious that we would write about that. I think when we decide that the mundane is not worth writing about, we're also deciding that the people who do the mundane things are not worth writing about. You, you end up again with a narrative of heroism and glory that completely erases what most people actually spend most of their time doing. And I've never understood the relationship between that's not quite true. I think there's a problem with constructing the relationship between domestic and intellectual work as a conflict. And I have trouble with some 20th century feminist arguments. I mean, the whole room of one's own narrative assumes that either the artist is entitled to a room of her own by virtue, presumably, of being an artist. You know, somebody's going to, still going to have to empty the bin and clean the loo and make the breakfast. Um, or that everybody is entitled to a room of their own, in which case, who is emptying the bin and cleaning the loo and making the breakfast? So my literary heroes are very often writers who are interested in the poetics of cleaning the loo and making the breakfast. And I would look back to Dorothy Wordsworth, for example, who writes really beautifully about housework and laundry and gardening and cooking and going to get the pies and going to post the letters and making the soup and washing her hair. So I think if we can pay attention to that kind of detail and recognise that the work of being in a body in the world is not some kind of dirty, messy thing that we should all be ignoring or rising above, but fundamental to being being human, but just being alive, I mean, human or not, it's one of the things we have in common with animals, we all have to eat, we all have to sleep, we all make a mess and have to deal with it in some way. That seems to me to be a much more fundamental kind of truth. Okay, let's, mm -hmm. let's go there, truth. Um, than the very disembodied abstract thinking that I think some, some writers and academics would, would want to privilege. So it's both a philosophical and a political position. Well, and and the the beautiful the beautiful head of garlic that you 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 receive in the winter time, you know, that may have come from Spain, is you know both a, you know a, a result of of global economics and and interchange and and advanced technology, mm -hmm. and at the same time, it's a sensual pleasure. It's a it's a, it's a, it's something that enhances your transient experience in the kitchen that. Uh, we sometimes um, take so much for granted the material ease and comfort of the post-war era, this sort of yeah. like early 21st century era, 
and now it seems imperiled or, or fragile again. Um, and I think you evoke that time and again in your characters and in their realizations that, again, life hasn't turned out exactly as planned. Life has changed. Um, and there's a lot of self-examination that occurs in your books as characters sort of wonder how they got to where they are and what they should feel or should not feel guilty about. Can we talk about the extra burden of expectation or guilt that in many ways is still gendered in our societies, the ways that particularly mothers um, are, are made to feel um, deficient or extra responsible? Because, mm. because if I'm not wrong, I, I see that as a, a thread that emerges in multiple characters in, in, in your works and as a theme. Yeah, and I think it's one of the common experiences of probably, I think you're right, I think it's still gendered, maternity in particular. I remember my family doctor who was lovely and very helpful to me when I was quite distressed after my first child was born, saying, look, you birth the guilt with the baby, you know, get used to it, you're going to, the guilt is just built in to maternity and it's going to be with you for the rest of your life, so you better find a way of living with it. And in some ways that was very comforting. You know, this is not going to go away, so deal with it. But but deal with it in quite a nice way, kind of, you know, make make your peace with it, learn how to live with and around it. Um and in some ways really distressing because I'm not sure that anybody's saying to new fathers, look, you're just going to feel guilty for the rest of your life now, cope. Yeah. And my life has moved on so much since then. I think there's a different set of cultural expectations that comes with being the parent of teenagers and young adults, but I find they're, they're much more congenial to me personally than the expectations that come with being the parent of babies and young children. And I've emigrated, which brings you enormous freedom because the, you know, the shibboleths of Irish femininity are largely foreign to me and nobody's holding me to them because I'm not Irish and I'm expected to be strange and foreign anyway. So that's, that's been very freeing. But I'd also say that I think probably we should feel a sense of responsibility and sometimes a sense of failure and be able to live with that. I'm much more worried by people who can't tolerate the can't tolerate any kind of recognition of their own inadequacies or failings than people who can say, yep, you know, buggered up that one, buggered mm -hmm. up that one, buggered up that one. Here I am, broken and human mm -hmm. in my failure. So I think particularly as I get older and it's probably coming from confidence and some privilege, it feels much freer and much better to be able to say, Yes, I failed in these ways. It's okay. Yeah, we all do it. There we go. I I I truly mean it when I say that there's so much on every page of your recent novels, and they are they are slim books. These are books that are elegantly constructed, but dense with information and dense with feeling and, and characterization and, and the sense of the world at large that you can take an intimate space and extrapolate to the world situation or to you know when you're reading your works the time and place that that this is taking place um 
how did the fell come about during the experience that you've had during the prolonged pandemic and and the lockdowns i wasn't particularly planning to write it i'd my experience of lockdown was very shaped by the fact that we emigrated quite early on so it meant that we had some lockdown in England and then a lot of lockdown in Ireland and we had some where we were waiting to leave the country and some where we'd just arrived in a new country. Um, in Ireland, well in Dublin, we were not permitted to go more than five kilometres from home for seven months, which I found much easier than the English version where we were obliged to stay in the house for 23 hours in 24 for several weeks. That got me very, very panicky. Um, my five kilometers was new to me and that made a huge difference i think the difference between being constrained to a five kilometer radius where you know everywhere already and being constrained to a five kilometer radius where pretty much all of it is a novelty is really quite huge so it's not really an autobiographical book at all because i mean i wasn't in that place mm -hmm. But that was my 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 experience of lockdown was so distinctive because of emigration um, that I was a little distant from from both the English and the Irish experience. But because of the five kilometer lockdown, I was very much missing hills and mountains, and I usually spend a lot of time hiking in the mountains. And the particular place where the fell is set is very near where my parents live. And I couldn't visit my parents for nearly two years. And I think globally, that's a very common experience. Um, and I couldn't go to the mountains. So it was a love letter to a place from which I was exiled in various ways. And also a way of thinking about those, those issues, which I think are not just pandemic issues. I mean, the real emergency is the climate emergency. Yes. Pandemics come and go. Um, and this one, has come and seems to be going but will probably come again but the real problem actually is the climate change and I think we're going to have very much the same things to worry about with dwindling resources what is essential and what is not essential who gets to say what is essential and not essential and the word essential became so weighted in both England and Ireland because you could go out for essential purposes um, essential shops could stay open, essential services could run. If you were an essential worker, you were allowed to go to work. But the definition of what's essential is inevitably political. And in some ways you could see that very clearly because in Ireland, for example, shoe shops were excluded from the list of essentials, which is all well and good until your two-year-old grows in seven months, which you know children tend mm. to do and needs new shoes. And meanwhile, elite sport was considered essential because it was vital to maintaining the morale of the nation. Well, elite sport does nothing for my morale in either direction. Um, my kids not being able to have shoes that fit them is a problem. So I think you could quite often reason back from what was imagined as essential to the people doing the imagining. And usually they were men of a certain age and status with a certain set of interests and a certain set of assumptions about how everybody else lived their lives. And we're going to have all of this again because as resources dwindle we will need to prioritize what is essential and there will need to be some consensus about what is essential and i think we're already seeing it thinking about who gets to fly i mean i have mm -hmm. well-deserved and terrible flying shame because i'm you know, joyously accepting invitations to go everywhere at the moment and absolutely delighted to be 
on the road in the, in the skies again, but I am very well aware that if you know, for all I'm vegetarian and don't drive, there's no point in doing that if you're going to take transatlantic flights. Mm. It's, you know, um, my reasoning is partly that I think there's a moral case for travel. I think if we all stop visiting each other, if we raise a generation of people who have never left home and know the world only through a screen, we're heading for some really serious problems. I think that readers re meeting writers is really important. I think writers meeting each other is really important. But all of this is obvious self-justification, right? I mean, anybody can make a case for the essential nature of their own desires. So a lot of the, the need to pull consensus out of conflict mm -hmm. that came with the pandemic is going to come again tenfold as the oil runs out. So I suppose this is a very long way of saying this, although it's a pandemic novel, I think it's not just a pandemic novel. And some of the some of the issues I was thinking about and working through are going to be with us in different ways for a very long time. I mean, we saw them very clearly during lockdown, but we'll be seeing them again and we'll need new ways of thinking about them. Well, just before the war in Ukraine uh, was, was launched by Russia, the, the headlines in the UK were all about what is known as Partygate. Um, and it may be difficult for it to fully resonate for a Canadian audience, but after reading The Fell and really having a, a deeper appreciation of the trauma that's inflicted on people forced into isolation or quarantine, and the sense of self-sacrifice of like, I know I really want to go comfort this person, but is it allowed? Am, am I going to make them sick? All of the moral aspects of solidarity, of getting through a, a health emergency or a public disaster that played out in Canada, as well as the, the UK and in, in Ireland, uh, in Europe, uh, everywhere. It, the affront that people feel to know that people were partying um, blithely and that this is really how it always used to be. And more and more, it looks like how it will be again. Yes, yes. And you'd hope that we might learn how to do it better. But the problem is that we, right? I mean, some of us might, but some people, I'm always worried when people say some people imagine themselves above the law because somebody has to question the law and somebody has to challenge the law and I think that's that's part of the work of citizenship but there were so many stories in Canada and in Ireland and in England about people who couldn't be with dying parents and people who couldn't comfort the immediately bereaved and people who missed all kinds of things that will shape the rest of their lives because they were holding themselves to the rules to protect others. And then you read that the people who were making the rules were disregarding them entirely. And I don't quite know how we get around that, that betrayal. You're listening to Writers' Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. In Summerwater and again in The Fell, um, there are characters who 
feel a really strong connection to the natural world, who, who feel best when they are running or hiking or connected to the land, the landscape. The landscape's being transformed and devastated by, by climate change, but still there's something that you are able to evoke is a sense of exhilaration and connection with the natural world. And then contrasted with all of our cyber experiences and our, our interior lives, which are more and more uh, inside uh, enclosed spaces. Um, you know, you maybe uh, share with me a bit about your experience connecting to landscape and to the body. And you know, th there's another element here about an awareness of the fragility of our bodies and the transient nature of our bodies, and yet the exhilaration of testing our limits or perhaps surpassing our limits. Yeah, I was thinking as you were speaking about the like irony of us having this conversation over Zoom for yeah. a podcast. Um, yes, I think it was one of the reasons why I was so horrified by a lot of the ways other people cope. I mean, not that I thought other people's coping strategies were horrifying, but why the idea that the online world could just substitute for the real thing was really horrifying to me. I mean, this would be, this would be different if you and I were sitting on chairs next to each other in front of a real life audience. I mean, this is great. And it's wonderful that I can yeah. talk to readers in Canada. And it's a great conversation. I'm really glad to be talking to you. But we know and the listeners know, that if we could all be physically present together, this would be a different kind of event. Absolutely. So I think that's exactly the conflict, right? Because if I came to Canada, the carbon cost would be enormous. And if we were all together listening, there would be some people who are listening to this now who would not be safe in that crowd. And there would be some people who would be choosing not to wear masks, even though doing so would make the crowd a bit safer for other people, you know, th this whole mm -hmm. thing. So as it is, our voices can reach each other and can reach the people listening by this magic of global electronic communication, which is brilliant. On the other hand, we've lost something and we know it. And I think it's probably part of the same kind of way that I think about cooking and cleaning and laundry as being not inevitably the enemies of art, but the fuel for it or hand in hand with it. For me, being in a body in the weather is so fundamental to how I understand life itself. I mean, I was thinking how I understand being human, how I understand, no, it's not that, it's it's life, you know, it's, sorry, you can probably hear my cat in the background. Um, and we are the natural world. The idea that there's any division between us and the natural world should have been blown out of the water by COVID, even if people hadn't noticed before then. I mean, what is a virus, if not nature, if not wilderness? What is happening in ourselves, if not the victory of nature? So I think the idea that we can imagine ourselves as separate from physicality, because I always wonder when we say nature, what do we mean? What, you know, what is the natural world and how is it different from anything else? And it's such a fantasy that we exist in any way outside that world. And again, I mean, you know, harking back to Wordsworth, but I always do. Wordsworth writes about this, that you can't write if you don't eat. 
-hmm. and food comes from the land so there is no thinking there is no writing there is no art there is no literature without land and not only without land but without people who spend their time cultivating the crops and people who spend their time harvesting and people who spend their time cooking and people who spend their time washing up and people who spend their time looking after those bodies of ours that betray us sooner or later or at least do what they were designed to do sooner or later we are the natural world and we are simultaneously destroying the natural world but the call to stop doing that is not a call to honor some kind of abstract ideology or to demonstrate virtue it's a call to stop destroying ourselves because that's what mm -hmm. we're doing and the problem again is that we you know the ourselves is too big we can't really hold it we can't really imagine it until it's the people we can see i don't think it's that we don't believe it or we don't care i think it's just that it's really really hard to think on the scale that you have to think on to stop destroying the planet and i can't do it either i mean I'm, I'm not suggesting that i have solved this problem in any philosophical or practical way i am flying uh, i mean not at the moment but you know i have gone back to flying with guilt and enthusiasm i cannot quite conceive that anything that i do on the scale of my own life is going to have any any measurable impact mm -hmm. on the end of the world and that's mm -hmm. exactly the problem it's a problem of scale you know uh, you know a quarter century century ago or more you know the the slow food movement began to to come to fruition in italy and, and those philosophies have expanded and have been embraced by by many people um, and if we can extrapolate from that, the need to slow down, the need to connect to the natural world and to really understand sustainability. Um, we were speaking earlier that, you know, we, we came of age in a time where we believed that uh, the progress of, of capitalist societies or of consumer economies was infinite. Um, and that liberal democracy would go hand in hand with that. And that's, that's not going to be the, the case. It's, it's much more complicated than that. And the paradox of being able to isolate safely in your home with your iPad and buy, you know, what I'm wearing, the recycled sustainable wool sweater that still has to come on a plane from Vancouver uh, in two in two days because I ordered it on the internet. Um, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I've, I've heard people say that the amount of energy that's required to conduct a Google search to, to search on Google is equivalent to the amount of energy required to boil a cup of water to make a cup of tea. So every time we search on our computers, we're using energy and we don't see or think of it. We, we think of the planes, we think of cars. Um, that, that again is in your work is that the ethical arrangements people make with themselves about consumption. Yes. Yes. And I think about this a lot in relation to food. I mean, I, I cook a lot. I like, I like cooking. I like eating. I like running. So those things go together quite well. Um, the sins of food are really in the production, not the consumption. And I get really annoyed with all this rhetoric about, oh, this is a naughty piece of food. And I think, well, it's a naughty piece of food if it's made by slave labor in an environmentally destructive way. If it's, an, you know, the fact that it contains butter and sugar does not make it naughty. 
And I think we moralize the wrong end of that one all the time. The other thing I always think about slow food is that, I mean, my, one of my characters says this, I think in Night Waking, it's not a coincidence that fast food and supermarkets happen at the same time as equal pay legislation. You know, for all we might glorify slow food, and I do glorify it, and I, yeah. I cook slowly myself, but yeah. you see, I can cook slowly myself because my time is largely at my own disposal. I mean, my responsibility is to earn enough money to support my family. But if I can do that and also make all the bread with sourdough with my own hands, great, fine, you know, nobody's stopping me. And I think about how much the oven is on and I make sure that when it's bread day, it's also baking day and we have baked potatoes for dinner or whatever. How virtuous of me, how nice that I have the time and the resources to be able to do that. And I order huge sacks of organic Irish flour, which are expensive, and I have the space to store them. How nice for me. That doesn't mean everybody can do that. Mm-hmm or that it's reasonable to expect that everybody will do that. So I think the slow food movement in particular is quite male dominated. And I always think that's interesting in relation to who actually does most of the cooking in most of the households in most of the world. And it is pretty demonstrably true, I think, that when you offer people who are obliged to do things basically and slowly, the opportunity to do them fast and at more leisure, they tend to take it. I mean, I've yet to encounter anybody who says, no, thank you, um, I will not have safe running water because I would rather do things the natural way. Of course not. So I, th- you, know, you don't want to throw the late capitalist baby out with the bathwater, or if you mm-hmm. do, you want to know that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I still think, can I go back and ask myself this one at intervals, if I could come, if I had to take make the choice between being being pretty much anyone in the world now and taking the chance on coming back as anyone at any point in history would i rather be in northern europe in the early 21st century or would i rather take the risk of being a peasant in the 14th century thanks very much i'll stick with the clean running water the antibiotics mm-hmm. the dishwashers the reliable contraception mm-hmm. You know, the education, the healthcare, the transport, all of that. I mean, yes, with the risk of nuclear apocalypse and the imminence of climate meltdown and all of that stuff. Yeah, thanks. I'll I'll take that. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. still, for, you know, for all our doom mongering and woe, actually, science and capitalism have brought us some pretty good stuff that we would be mm-hmm. ill advised to throw away, including, for example, vaccinations. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And. And not to be overly flipped, but we have had slow food before, and it was Downton Abbey. It was the the mode of production yeah. where, you know, the five people at the top of the food chain got to enjoy all the delicious vegetables, and the 35 people who worked year-round to make them uh, uh, produced them organically. Um, yeah, exactly. And I was thinking when we were talking about the Blitz, the really interesting thing about, about the 1940s that conservatives never mention is that rationing massively improved the health of the nation because for the first time the poor were getting enough to eat and i mean the rich always managed to get a bit more but everybody was eating the same thing and everybody was getting enough and everybody was being well nourished everybody was getting vegetables and whole grains and a bit of fruit sorry siamese cat um and not too much sugar and the fat was being distributed around the population. Mm. So that fantasy of, of national pulling together is actually pretty damn socialist, if not actually communist. Yeah. 
Um, well, there's, there have always been socialist systems within advanced uh, capitalist societies, and it's been the military. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I was raised in a military household where my dad was in the military and everything was provided for, you know, subsidies for the cost of your move, your travel, your accommodation, and so on, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. But what I want to say is how much I appreciate your work and how much is contained in novels that are under 200 pages. And again, the notion that in order to be um, significant or important or powerful, it doesn't mean that you have to write a 500 page doorstopper. Um, do you have a sense as a working writer of the advantages of being agile, of being able to get a new novel to, to a reading public every year? Are you going to be able to sustain this? No, I'm, I'm not. I think those, those three short novels were, were a phase. Um, and I'm moving on now. I've been really interested in this with the reception of the fell. I thought that if there was difficulty with the fell, it would be because I put a talking bird in a realist novel. And I was so shocked to discover that quite a lot of critics thought that it was somehow rude or indecent to publish a novel set within a year of the date of publication. And there were several otherwise very positive reviews that said, but it's too soon, it's too soon. And I thought, how do you know? And who decides? And who's going to tell us when we're now allowed to write about it? And it was so weird because if you'd published in 2018 a novel set in 2017, nobody would have cared at all. But somehow, because there's a pandemic, you shouldn't write about the thing that everybody's been talking and thinking and weeping and demonstrating about for the last two years, you should somehow pretend that that thing hasn't happened. And I thought, I'm not participating in some global act of repression here. This strikes me as bizarre. And I've just taken a commission um, for some short stories. And I won't name the, the commissioning body, but they said, and you won't write about COVID, will you? And I said, well, I'm not going to pretend it didn't happen. I mean, no, actually, I don't. You know, it's not going to be front and centre on this occasion because it's not what I feel called to write about now. Um, but I'm not going to produce a fantasy version of the present or the recent past in which there was no pandemic. And I don't understand why anybody would. It, it seems really, really weird to me. Um, so... I think I'm more surprised by the idea that there's a problem with the with fiction being contemporary mm -hmm. than than seeing it as a difficulty that it should be. Um, but I haven't I haven't started another novel since I finished okay. the foul. Okay. And I think I'm going to do something different next. I'm inclining well back towards a kind of historical fiction, but I think a different kind. And I expect the next book will probably be longer and slower. Well, it's obviously going to be slower in the making because we're already yeah. a year and a bit in and I haven't started. Um, but I think it's going to be a different kind of thing. Yeah, when we're, we're speaking this afternoon about post-war culture and about, uh, about books, but also uh, think of in the 1960s when the Beatles released an album every nine months and how there was an artistic progression and it was absolutely of a place and time. And it was it was uh, absolutely integral to, to their artistic project that they were able to record and issue new material 
and uh, one uh, followed the other in a, in a sequence that now seems almost sort of uh, predestined or foreordained. And in a writer's career with the books that they publish, I think what I'm appreciating about your works is that there is a sequence, like there is a progression in your in your craft and in the in the complexity of the books, if not necessarily the length. And when you were speaking a moment ago about the raven in the fell, tell me about your decision to incorporate an element that could be interpreted as mythological or magic realist in your fiction. It was entirely playful. I just wondered what would happen if I did it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I've been interested in ravens for a while because if you spend a lot of time outdoors alone in the places where I do, they're quite curious. They tend to come and have a look at what you're doing and have a chat and hang around a bit. And when I used to cycle into work in Iceland, I think at that date, I was pretty much the only person who cycled to work in Iceland. I mean, I have no idea if it was the same raven or a different one. I can't tell one from another, but I was often accompanied down the coast path in the dark by a raven that would hop from one streetlight to another ahead of me. And there've been a few times when I've been hiking alone and a raven has circled and kind of landed and made a few rude remarks and taken off and landed again and made some other comments. And I, I just liked it and I thought it was fun. Um, and I usually talk to them if they're talking to me, if I'm on my own. Um, teenagers don't like it if you do that kind of thing. It doesn't always stop me. So I just wondered what would happen if I tried it and I quite liked it. So I kept doing it, but it wasn't it wasn't a great artistic decision. And I wondered if I'd get away with it mm. because I normally write in such a very realist mode. Well, there's there's certainly a revenant, uh, a resonance with it, with the inclusion of of the Raven and the the mental state as as uh, as the as the book progresses in terms of are we are we experiencing hallucination or a dream state? Uh, I, I think that you, you, you weave realism and, and sort of the, that the sort of dream consciousness state beautifully into the text. And for anyone reading in North America, of course, ravens have such an enormous mm. cultural symbology and weight in the, in the traditions of uh, indigenous peoples in, in North America and are a sacred symbol and have enormous cultural importance for many peoples, many different groups of people. Yes. And in some ways, I, I don't think that what you intended was any form of appropriation, but it was organic because intelligent birds, intelligent life forms uh, exist around the planet and people have always been encountering the natural world and interacting with other species. And Yeah, I did worry a bit about appropriation because one of the books I keep on my desk um, is Bill Reed's on Hyder, Ravens and Bears. Um, so I wondered about that. But I also thought that we we have ravens and traditions of talking ravens in Europe in too. Northern Europe. And yeah. yeah, and they're they're just uncanny birds. Absolutely. Sarah, is there anything that I haven't asked you today or that you haven't been asked in recent weeks about the fell that you'd love to express or that you'd love to have a chance to, 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 to speak to? I don't think so. 
Thank you. I really liked your questions. These have been the best questions I've been asked about the film. Um, I love the book um, and I've enjoyed, you know, the, the previous two novels. And for me, it's been a treat to have a new work from you during this long two years, this pandemic to say, oh, there's a new Sarah Moss. Wonderful. I know what I'm doing this weekend. Um, <laughs> Names, Names for the Sea is also a book that I just find is uh, has a status right now where it's still in print and still circulating. And I recommend it highly to anyone um, because there's so much um, reportage in it. There's su such a snapshot of what the world looked like uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when the economic crash happened and the oil shocks were happening. Uh, and I think in your postscript, you write that, you know, after you left Iceland, you know, the, the grocery stores changed and the consumer economy rebounded and tourism boomed. But again, in that book, you capture the fragility of like all of this progress, which comes to a crashing halt yeah. and what it meant for a, a very traditional based society with its own self-conceptions and its own contradictions. Can we talk just a bit about, I know it's it's an older mm, title, uh, but for me, I think it's just a spectacular work of nonfiction. And what does that book uh, represent to you? For me, it's partly a form of travel writing that's resolutely rejecting the heroic. And I'd always quite wanted to write about travel and thought that I couldn't because all the travel writers I was reading would say things like, so I went into the bar and got chatting to the locals. And there was no way I was ever going to go into the bar and get chatting to the locals. I'm far too shy. I would, I mean, I wouldn't walk into a bar on my own, not because of any ideas about gender and propriety, but just because I couldn't bear the the idea that I expect people to talk to me or I wouldn't feel that I had any right to be there. It would be yeah, it's just not me. Um, and I wasn't going to chat to the locals unless the locals chatted to me first, because certainly then I just didn't have that kind of social confidence. And that had always made me think that I couldn't do it. And I had a very similar experience a few years after that, where in fact, doing the research for Science for Lost Children, I'd always been fascinated by Japan and wanted to go. But also always known that I wouldn't be able to because I would be so afraid of offending people, or saying the wrong thing or being some huge ugly rude foreigner clumping around getting things wrong that I just couldn't you know I, I couldn't possibly it would, would be impossible and then I thought but if I give myself permission to travel as a shy person if I don't say but if you travel you have to chat to the locals and if you're going to go to Japan then you have to go slurp noodles in a noodle bar even if slurping noodles feels to you like the most appalling thing a person could do I mean not the most appalling but you know an impropriety um then I can do things and going to Iceland so almost all of the travel writing about Iceland is mostly men going and you know, riding horses while wearing Viking helmets and drinking whiskey or whatever. And I was there with a two-year-old and a six-year-old needing to sort out nursery and work out how you get children's paracetamol at midnight on a Sunday when they suddenly throw a temperature. Yeah. And I wanted to write that kind of travel book. You know, what what is it like if you're pretty shy, um, in charge of two small children who are absolutely going to make sure that you're not doing anything heroic because... You know, two-year-olds two have their own forms of heroism but they're not the sort you can put in travel books um can you write a travel book that's really about integration and i think there's been a lot more of that kind of writing since and there have been a lot of memoirs about families moving abroad but there weren't really at the time 
um, and exploring on the local scale. I mean, I had a lot of very beautiful and transformative experiences of Icelandic landscape and weather and sky and sea, but they were nearly all within about 10 kilometers of where we lived because I had a full-time job and two small children and a house mm -hmm. to run and you know, the volcano went off, so the road was closed. So I suppose it was in some ways a precursor to some of the fiction I wrote at the time and afterwards, because I was writing Night Waking while we were in Iceland, that really takes seriously the small scale domestic work that occupies most of most of our time. Um, so yeah, sorry, long no, answer, but I, I, I thank you for that answer. And, and for me as a reader, um, some of the, the passages in the book describing um, what it's like to try and go grocery shopping when none of the things you expect to find in the store are are available at all and you have to bring them back in your luggage after the holidays. Um, again, that that notion of, uh, of disruption and also the beautiful small grace notes in our lives that we sometimes don't take for granted, like that beautiful ripe tomato in winter or the, the pint of raspberries or whatever it is and how lucky we are to be alive at this time yes. and, and to have those things in our kitchens. And yeah. and and uh, so sometimes the absurdities of the things that drive us the craziest or the things that you know the small things that that yes. become the big hills uh, for us you know uh, the big yes. um and simply before i ask you to to read to to conclude uh, our conversation are you aware of just the sheer beauty of your prose your prose style has anyone mentioned to you um that sometimes there's a passage in one of your books and it's like a slide when you're a kid at the playground it's like i want to go back and get up and go down again i want to read it again uh, because it, there's so much uh, so beautifully expressed and so in such a concise and elegant fashion. It's like, I can't believe I've just read that. I've never read that before. I'm going to go back and read it again. Thank you. You're very kind. I'm going to read a bit from Alice um, in the Fell. When I started writing, I thought Kate, who is in some ways the, the most similar to me, was going to be my favourite character. Um, Kate is a 40-something mother of a teenage boy who's been told to isolate for two weeks in her small grubby house on the hillside in the Peak District and she just cannot stick being inside another day and goes out onto the mountain. And Alice is her neighbour who is in her 70s, widowed, um, having breast cancer treatment and therefore officially told to stay in her house and not to see anybody. Um, Alice is also going slightly mad, but she's older and braver and calmer and more experienced and is doing so in a much more dignified way. So the bit where I'm reading, Alice has been baking and also singing and dancing. I am not going to sing. You wouldn't know if I danced, but I'm not going to do that either. So you'll have to take that bit as read. Cookies. There's less than a minute between perfect and crunchy. If you're going to eat all that butter and sugar, it better be good. Not that she is going to eat all that butter and sugar. Well, maybe a couple after dinner with a very moderate spoonful of ice cream. Doesn't seem to have occurred to the government that the extremely vulnerable will be extra specially extremely vulnerable after months without outdoor exercise. Dancing's not going to burn off many cookies. She's going to send them special delivery tomorrow morning, the cookies. Ask Matt next door to take them to the post office and give him a few of his trouble. He can always use some feeding up. Kate keeps him on rabbit food. Not that they haven't been very kind, both of them, all the way through this. Doing her shopping when she couldn't get a delivery. 
And recently they've been walking or on bikes, even with the milk and tins coming up the hill. The car insurance ran out, Kate said when she asked, and it's not as if we're going anywhere anyway. Only she couldn't ask them for the things she really wants. Salt and vinegar hula hoops and the expensive bitter mints. Not with Kate working at shoots and leaves and growing her own lentils or whatever. Probably hasn't eaten a hula hoop in decades. It's infantilising, that's what it is, having to have other people bring you food. At least she's not drinking or only the occasional sherry at weekends. Have to mark the day somehow. Mmm, this is a good batch. They're much nicer fresh. Just one more. The big one with all the chocolate. It's just that since Mark died, she's got used to privacy, buying what she fancies, which actually used to be mostly pots of soup and remarkably expensive bread from the nice deli by the station, eating it when she likes and none of anyone else's business. She'd probably better go into another room while the cookie's cool. Or put the rack in the sitting room, that's a better idea, while she clears up. Newspaper on the coffee table in case of crumbs. Oh hell, but they're in isolation, aren't they, Matt and Kate? What do they call it? Self-isolating. One of those horrible new nonsensical phrases. Social distancing. Whoever came up with that? There's not much less social than acting as if everyone's unclean and dangerous. Though the problem, of course, is that they are, or at least some of them are, and there's no way of knowing. Medical distance, they should call it. Or why not just safe distance? And when did distance become a verb? Language is also infected. Return George Orwell, England has need of thee. So Matt can't go to the post office tomorrow when the grandchildren won't get the cookies. And it's Matt's friend, not Matt, coming over on Friday with her shopping. Nice lad, turns out. Though he looks, well, a bit dodgy really. Hood up and eyes down. But she should know better than that to judge by appearances. Only appearances are a choice, aren't Anyway, he can take some of the cookies too. She hates the way they won't let her pay them or do anything at all, really. Very generous, of course, but there's a limit to how grateful you want to be, how helpless you want to feel, and she passed it a while ago. I was a whole person, she wants to say. I worked my way up, managed a team and a budget. I volunteered in this and that most of my life. I was bossy and still could be, given anyone to boss. Extremely vulnerable. Laura says bossy is gendered. No one calls a man bossy. They either take it for granted that men are like that, or they say authoritative, or a good leader. She picks up another cookie. Some days you have to take comfort where you find it. Puts the kettle on for a cup of tea to go with it. She wanders over to the window. How did she forget that? Poor Matt, and especially poor Kate, she'll be going mad. She forgot because it was just a text message, that's why. Because your mind and memory can't get much purchase on pixels on a screen. Because nothing feels real anymore. She leans her face against the glass to feel it cold and hard. No one's touched her in months. Not since she had that last lunch with Sheila back in March at the garden centre and they did the air kissing thing they learnt late in life. No one's ever going to do that again, are they? Maybe she'll die without ever touching another human. Maybe she's had her last hug, handshake, air kiss. She realised at the funeral, in fact, standing there singing next to Susie, that she'd almost certainly had the last sex of her life. She's come to terms with that, mostly. Sorts herself out when she needs it. But you can't hug yourself or pat your own shoulder. Oh, shut up, she thinks. Pull yourself together. Here you are, nice and warm and comfortable in your nice house with your nice neighbours, arranging for their nice friends to bring you nice food. And there are people dying out there. Children hungry and women locked up with men who beat them and nurses working 28 hours a day. You just shut up and wash up. 
Stop patting yourself and put those cookies somewhere you're not going to eat them. More Springsteen. There's a reason they don't like protest anthems about well-off retired people feeling a bit sad. What is it they say? Check your privilege. And there it is, her privilege, in plain sight as always. But she's still leaning against the window, watching her breath mist the glass. When she sees Kate coming down the garden path next door, glancing right and left before she opens the gate, striding off up the lane. Hiking boots, backpack, no pretending she's rushing to the doctor. I should stop her, Alice thinks. She's breaking the law. But Kate's moving fast and Alice just stands there, cheek to cheek with her window, watching. That was Sarah Moss reading from her powerful new novel, The Fell. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.